Um, I'm going to read, and uh, you guys can follow along. Uh, it says in verse 1, And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of, of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And mind you, this is the Nile River. I've seen the Nile River. Um, I would never put my infant child in it. Anyway, in verse 4, it says, And the sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. You know, maybe, well, I'll get to that later. I don't want to get ahead. But in verse 5, it says, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the river, and, the, and her, her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw a child. And behold, the baby wept. And so she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maid went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, verse 11, it came to pass in these days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that way. <laughs> and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Now in verse 15 it says, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped the, them and watered their flocks. And when, they came to, and when they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian. That's interesting. An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you left the man? Call him here that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Sephora, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time, the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to the God because of the bondage. 
So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Father, help us to see the truths in your word here, God, that you desire to speak to us this morning. Lord, help us to see even more what it means to live by faith, to walk by faith, and to know, God, that even when it seems like nothing's going on, Lord, that there, you're, there you are, working, seeing, acknowledging, um, keeping your covenant. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're here from last week, you know some of these things, but if not, um, I just want to go over a little bit. In last week's study, we made it through chapter 1. We went through the introduction of the book of Exodus, and we made it through chapter 1. And in that first chapter, um, we know, and it, it, it follows here in, in, in context as we get a, a really an explanation for the things that we're reading here in chapter 2, but it became very difficult for the Hebrew people who were there living in Egypt. And they had been previously blessed with, with many years of favor, uh, roughly up to this point, somewhere around 400. 400 years of favor. And we know, we're told, that it was as a result of Joseph. Joseph, who had been raised up to ruler in the land of Egypt, and um, um, he had become very prominent and very successful because God had given him wisdom to sustain Israel during those seven years of famine. And, and Joseph served faithfully. And, and it was that favor, we're told, that was extended to um, Jacob and, and his descendants. And we're told that after Joseph, however, after Joseph, his brothers, and um, uh, all, it says all that generation, after they all died, then rose into power was another king of Egypt, another pharaoh, one who did not know Joseph, one who did not know who the children of Israel really were, and, and what they were really like. And he, in turn, looked upon the Hebrew people as a threat, and not as a blessing to the nation as they had been, and probably would have continued to be. Consequently, this, this new leader of Egypt went ahead and, and took measures, and took measures to suppress the Hebrew people, to literally to control um, them because they had, they had grown exceedingly mighty. And in doing so, he first set these taskmasters, these Egyptian taskmasters over them, who forced the Hebrew people into hard labor. Yet when the Hebrew people continued to prosper, in spite of the oppressions that were put on them, um, Pharaoh commanded that they be made to serve with rigor. And their lives made, were made bitter, it says, with hard bondage. Furthermore, we know that Pharaoh commanded Hebrew or, or com commanded the, the Hebrew midwives to kill every one of the male babies at birth. Yet, because they feared God, they resisted that command. And when the Hebrew people continued to prosper, when they continued to grow in, in number, Pharaoh responded by then issuing a decree, another command for all of the Egyptians, all of the populace there, to then act and take any one of the newborns that they would see of the males of the Hebrews and then cast them to their death in the Nile River. And, and I recap all of those things, not only give us context for chapter 2, but it, it, it was these things that had turned a once prosperous way of life for the Hebrew people that had been lived now for almost 400 years into a bitter life. And more importantly, a life that would cause the children of Israel, as we read at the end of this chapter, to cry out to God, to groan out to God, to be delivered from their oppression. And so 
God, if you remember, as we were studying through the book of, of, of Genesis, God had foretold a few times to Jacob and, and to, to Abraham and, and, and even to Joseph, had foretold of Israel's departure. He had spoken of it to them, that even though they were to go into this, the land of Egypt, uh, that they would eventually be brought out as a mighty nation, as a matter of fact. And, and, and we see that coming to pass here, and we see the plan or the way that God was, was bringing that prof- prophecy to pass and how he was working um, not only in, in the hearts of the Egyptians, but also in the, in the hearts of the Hebrew people to bring forth his will. And um, as, as a result, we know that as a result of God hearing the cry of his people, he's going to send a deliverer, Moses right? He's going to send a deliverer to them, one who would lead them not only out of Egypt, but lead them into the land that God had given to them, the promised land. And here in chapter 2 is where we're first introduced to this deliverer, a small baby, a young baby who was born at perilous, in, a, in a perilous time. And we're told about the things that God would do in him and, and, and the circumstances surrounding it that God was working out in, in order for God to not only do a work in Moses, but to do a work through Moses. And so, if we look back to the beginning of this chapter, and, and, and we'll begin to go through it, um, I want to first refer back to Exodus chapter 6, because I, I just want to point out that, that these two people mentioned here in verse 1 have names. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, we're given their names. And this man in verse 1, who was from the house of Levi, who married a woman who was from the house of Levi, his name was Amram. And his wife, who conceived and gave birth to Moses, her name was Joshabed. And according to verse 2, here in our text of chapter 2, we're told that when Moses was born, he saw, she saw, she looked on him and saw that he was a beautiful child. Now, I've never met any mother who's looked at their child and go, dang. Maybe some dads, because we're a little different. But it says that as she saw that he was beautiful, she took measures to hide him from the Egyptians who had been commanded at this time to kill babies like Moses. You know, and, and, and in light of the way that this reads, um, we might conclude that if Moses had been an ugly baby, then his mother would have promptly handed him over to the Egyptians and just been done with him, right? After all, who wants an ugly baby? <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, is the fact that Moses is described as a beautiful baby really had nothing to do with his appearance. And, 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 and I want to look at that a little bit because there's a really cool thing that's being, being told this here. It really had nothing to do with his appearance. Rather, in practicality, it had to do with his nature. That's what we know. And the Hebrew word that is used here for beautiful can be translated to other words as well, and it is in other passages of Scripture. But the Hebrew word is tobe. And, and, and it means simply this, it means um, good, or to be good, agreeable, and happy. Now, if you've ever had kids, and you've had more than one, perhaps you've had a child who is a tobe, one who is agreeable, one who is happy, one who is good by nature. And perhaps you've had other kids, like my son Riley, who had all kinds of colic issues, and all he did was scream for the first nine months of his life, it seemed like. And, and when we see it in this light, it kind of reveals some things to this, because in this light, we see that Moses was probably the type of baby who didn't cry and fuss a whole lot. And you know what? This would have made it easier. It would have helped in, 
him being hid for three months, right? But it also points beyond the practical. It points us to the fact that when Moses' parents, when they looked upon him, when they looked on him, they saw something more than just an infant. They saw something different in him or about him. And perhaps it was because they saw that Moses was a fulfillment. I think this is part of it because of what we read somewhere else, but I'm going to get to that. But I believe that when they looked upon Moses and they saw that he was beautiful, that he was good and agreeable to them, that they saw that Moses was a fulfillment to what God had already made known to him, to them, to his parents. Now, I point this out not only for clarity's sake, but because it points us really to another passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that confirms this and and keeps us in context, and it's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says this. It says that by faith, okay, that's a key word, by faith, when he, speaking of Moses, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. And it says, here's the key, they were not afraid of the king's commands. They were not afraid of the king's commands. Why? Because of faith. And so when we look at the bigger picture here, the other passages of Scripture make known to us, we see that Abraham and Joshabed, we see that what they did to conceive, okay, first of all, and then to hide their son was the result of their faith. That it was intentional, that it was purposeful, and it was a result of their faith. And their faith is what paved the way for God's work, for Israel's deliverance, a bigger plan of God. You see, at the time, Aram and Joshabed, or Jeshabed, uh, at this time, they already had two other children. We're, we're introduced to the daughter at this point who kind of tagged along and followed Moses as he floated downstream and then went and, and, and got mom when, when, when Moses was discovered. And, 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 but she also had a son, a son by the name of Aaron and a daughter by the name of Miriam. And we'll, they'll come to play later on down the road as this story continues. Um, and, and apparently, and we don't know for sure, but apparently both of these children were born long before Pharaoh had ever given this command to kill the newborn sons. And in light of this, in light of already having, having two sons, it was unlikely that, that Amram and Joshabed were just longing to have a child that they didn't have because they already had two, right? So when the command was given by Pharaoh to kill all the newborn sons and, 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 and every one of the Egyptian people were employed in this, this, this evil tactic, I suspect that Aram and Joshabed, they weren't going to risk having another child. Not many parents would. They wouldn't risk having another child and then putting that child's life at risk, right? That makes sense. Yet, we're told that because of faith, they what? Yet, because of faith, they did not fear Pharaoh's command. And when, when Moses was born, they did what was necessary to hide him. In light of this, I think it should draw our attention to something that we need to consider that we're told back in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Because in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it, it clearly tells us that faith, any faith, all faith, our faith, even a saving faith, only comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
And because when we apply this truth, this is significant because when we apply this truth to the faith explanation or the faith reason for why Moses' parents decided to have a third child and then to hide him after he was born, because of that, we can rightly conclude that what, what, what appeared to have been a really risky, right, and even maybe even a really foolish thing to do at this time was really an act of obedience, it was an act of obedience on their part to what God had spoken to them, to what they had heard, to what God had commanded. And Aram and Jeshabed's example is a reminder of the type of life, guys, that we who have been, the scriptures tell us, we who have been made righteous by God are called to live. What kind of life is that? What kind of walk is that? It's a walk of faith. It's a life of faith where we hear God's words and then we go forward and do what he's commanded. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, and, and we know that we're called to walk by faith and we know that we're called to live by faith. And the, and the fact of the matter, guys, in doing so, there's going to be times when doing what God has said for us to do seems like a risky thing. Right? Have you ever been there? You're going to be like, I don't know, I'm not too sure about that, God. Or how about even maybe perhaps a foolish thing where you're like, God, people are going to look at me when I'm going to do, and I'm going to do this, and they're going to go, yeah, fool. And that's some of the things that, that restrain us or, or influence us perhaps in a negative way when we're called to walk and live by faith. We assess it and we go, that's risky. People are going to think that I'm a fool, Lord. Yet what we can see from our account here is that we can trust in God's providence in God's plan, and in God's ability to execute his plan, which he makes known to us, which gives us the faith to know what to do and the strength to go for and do it. And in, 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 not, only, not only trusting in God's providence, but trusting in the fact, guys, we can trust in this. We can trust in the fact that God will work all things together for our good when we live in obedience to what he has just said. Just like he did here for Moses' parents, for Mamram and Jeshabed. Now, I wish there was, I wish there was some explanation given to us for why he could only be hid for three months, but, but we're not given any reason as we look ahead for, the, for why Moses could only be hidden for three months. But something had to have changed because I don't think anybody's just going to willingly put their, do what, do what Joshua did uh, with, with her son Moses. But, but what took place, even though we aren't given the reasons for why, it's clear that it's what his parents did to protect Moses at this point was also a great step of faith. Was it not? It's a continuation of what God had already led them to do as an act of faith through conception and then hiding, and now another great step of faith. And in verse 3, we're told that Joshua put Moses in this ark of bulrushes, which she, which she made waterproof, and, and she took special measures to, to do all that she could to entrust that, that Moses had the best chance possible from her side of things, and she set him adrift in the Nile River. And like I said, I've, I've not only seen the Nile River, I've been in the Nile River on a boat, and I'm glad I wasn't in it. There are huge crocodiles in the Nile River, the, and they're not even as, as dangerous as the hippopotamuses that line the banks of the Nile everywhere. It's a beautiful thing to see, but you don't, you don't want to be in that environment, especially as a three-month-old baby. 
But even when Joshebed was unable to control, okay, because there was a certain amount that she was able to control and, and a larger portion that she was unable to control, right? And even when Joshebed was unable to control what would happen next, we see that God was still in control. And man, that's so relatable to us because that's, that's what it's like living by faith. And as Moses drifted, as we see here, safely now downstream to the very place that Pharaoh's daughter had bathed and arrived there at the exact time when she had gone down to bathe, to the very place at the exact time, just coincidence, right? And when she saw Moses weeping, we see that that God must have moved. That God must have moved on her heart because even though she realized that this was a Hebrew child whom her father had decreed must be put to death, she, according to verse 6, it says, had compassion. It speaks of something taking place in the heart. And this is a good reminder for us because lots of times, guys, when we consider the works of God or the working of God, you know, lots of times we're to this place in our life where we don't, we don't doubt that God can work in our circumstances, right? We don't doubt that. We don't, we don't doubt that God can work in our circumstances. But you know what? We might find ourselves in this place where we're, where we're, we're doubting God's willingness or even ability to work in a person and change their heart. And the fact of the matter is, is when we limit God in these kinds of ways, when we limit what God can do and doubt His desire and His ability to work in the hearts of people around us, you know what it's going to do? It's going to affect us negatively in our own walk of faith. And I know when I mentioned that each one of us has reflected upon somebody in our own lives who has a hard heart towards the Lord. And at times where we've doubted God's ability and even desire to to, to reach into their heart and to soften and change them. And we know that God might be able to work in the circumstances in their lives surrounding them, but can He really change their hearts? And we can't limit God. And and, 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 And we can't because it'll affect us in a negative way. And when when we might even find ourselves in those times... As a result of, of, of doubting, we might find ourselves in those times because of that resisting. We might find ourselves refusing as a result to do what God has called us to do or what God has called us to say. Why? Not because we doubt God working in circumstances, and, and yeah, that, that too is a step of faith, but because we, we doubt that the people involved in our circumstances can ever be changed. Maybe it's an employer. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Lots of things that we, 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 and maybe that's not your deal. Maybe you have other limitations that you put on God. But we see even in this situation that not only did God control the circumstances, is that he moved in the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to bring forth his pan. It wasn't a hard thing for God. And God shouldn't be doubted. And even according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it tells us something special. Guys, it tells us in situations and circumstances like this that we may have be facing in our own lives, it says this in, in verse 20, that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly the, uh, above all that we ask and think. God, your God, my God, our Abba Father is able and willing to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask and think. 
And I, I bet, I suspect that Joshabed was thinking some things. When she put Moses in that ark of bulrushes, she had a plan. To some degree, we don't know exactly what that was, but we know that she had a plan because she made it so that that ark was waterproof. And I suspect that she thought, maybe somebody will find my Moses and draw him out and he'll be saved. She had a plan. She had an idea. She was thinking some things, right? Maybe she even had faith that God would work in certain circumstances that she could conceive in her own mind but not in others. And I, I, I truly believe, and I don't think any person in this situation could have expected or thought what God did next, which was exceedingly and abundantly more than probably even Joshabed had even thought or could have asked God to do. And clearly this was the case for Moses and his mother as we read how God not only protected Moses, right, from the hippos and the crocodiles and the, and the currents of the Nile River, but he orchestrated things so that Joshua Bed could get her son back. And not even not only have her son handed back to her without any fear of being put to death, but she got paid to, to nurse him. You look at that and you go, God. Have you ever had those moments in life where you just look at something and you just you don't even you know words to say, you just go, God exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask and think. And she got paid to nurse him until he was old enough to go back and live in Pharaoh's house. And I'm here to tell you that I've seen, I've seen this in other people's lives. I've seen God in other people's lives. And I've experienced that in my own life as well, where, where God works in ways like this when faith has been exercised. When faith has been exercised, where we take those steps that seem risky, when it seems foolish, and, and God just does God. And when something like this happens, we know that it is a God thing because here's the deal, and that's why I just say God, because there's no earthly explanation that can be found to explain what has just been done. Now, as we look on and read, it tells us in verse 11 that it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of them his brother. So Moses grew up, right, in Pharaoh's house. And there's speculations on how old he was before he went in there. And, 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 and some scholars, it's, it's anywhere between two and five years old. It's not important. The importance is, is that we know that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. And, and we see that this was also part of God's plan. That God would use this connection, this, these, this time in Moses' life, later down the road to come back and deliver his people. It was part of God's plan. It was a part of God's plan to prepare for Moses and equip him for what he would be called to do. And you guys, when you look to Acts chapter 7, verses 17 through 29, it's, 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 it's a passage of Scripture. It's an historical account spoken by one of the, the apostles, and, 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 and I don't need to get into all that. But in that passage, specifically verses 17 through 29, we're given a, 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 a more details, if you will, surrounding the events that they're reading about here. And we're, re we're reading about here. And I, and I would encourage you to go ahead and read that passage of Scripture on your own because I'm not going to read it this morning. But I am going to reference it often. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll point out that, that in Acts chapter 7, we're told this, that, Mordo, that Moses was 40 years old at this point. That he was 40 years old. I mean, that time of living in Pharaoh's house, like an Egyptian, 
clearly defined and shaped Moses in a very significant way, right? Forty years he lived in that house before, it says, specifically in Acts chapter 7, it says this, before his eyes were opened to see the burdens of his brethren and before his heart was stirred or before he was stirred in his heart to do something about it. So not only did he grow up in Pharaoh's house, he grew up as a true prince in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house, not even worried or caring about what was going on with the Hebrew people until his eyes were opened to see the burdens of his brethren and before he was stirred in his heart to do something about it. Furthermore, we're told that, that during those 40 years of, uh, that Moses spent, these first 40 years that Moses was, it says, educated in all wisdom of the Egyptians. He had an Ivy League education, if you will. And it says that he had become mighty in words and deed. He had risen to a place of power, to a place of prominence. And, and in fact, many Bible scholars even suggest that because of this passage that speaks this, that, that it's evidence that, that Moses was probably even being groomed to be the next pharaoh, the ruler over Egypt. And, because in, 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 and when we look at all of these things, I want to, it points out something to us. It, it, it reveals something to us. And, 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 and I, want to, I want to first state that even though an earthly education is a good thing, I think, I think you, you should go to, to school. I think you should do good in school. I think you should continue, even as adults, to grow in knowledge and understanding of even worldly things and, and, and become smart and become proficient in all that you do. Because I think that God uses those kinds of things for his service, for his glory. And, and, and even though an education is a good thing, and as servants of God, we should seek to gain knowledge and understanding that can in turn be dedicated to God, what we see is, is that Mo Moses here is a good example for us of how gaining knowledge and gaining understanding can never be a substitute for wisdom. And some of the smartest people, if you will, that I know are some of the most unwise people that I've ever met as well. And, 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 and really what we know is, is this wisdom, which knowledge can never be a substitute for, comes from, doesn't come from any book. It comes from, the Bible tells us, a fear of God, a knowledge of God, a, a relationship with God. As a matter of fact, it says from knowing God and keeping his commands, right? That's where wisdom comes from. In fact, this was the point that King Solomon made at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes when he wrote this, and he said, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 12 and 13. Very end, he says this, And furthermore, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. But let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is man's all. And because Moses, at this time, at this place, did not yet know God in an intimate way, in a personal way, he lacked wisdom. He had the best education that the world could provide in the best circumstances, in the best situations, yet he lacked wisdom. And this is why he failed here in verses 11 and 12. Failed, really, after God had opened up his eyes and stirred his heart, right, 
that he failed in his first attempt to deal with the injustice and the oppression of the Hebrew people that God had made known to him. But even though Moses had reacted at this time in, a God, in an ungodly way, which even appears to be premeditated. Did you ever really think about that? Moses was a, was a, a first-degree murderer, premeditated, and then tried to hide it. He looked around, didn't see anybody. Man, he had planned, he had concocted it. He said, I'm going to kill that guy, and then I'm going to hide his body if nobody sees. That's a whole different story. We'll, we'll get to that later on and deal with that a little bit later. But, but even though Moses had reacted really in truly an ungodly way by killing the Egyptian who was beating his Hebrew brother and even acted in an ungodly way by, by trying to cover it up, we need to see at this point that his willingness to intervene, okay? We need to see that his willingness to intervene, first it took courage. And it did take an aspect of faith, an element of faith, Considering that by, by making this stand, by, by moving to this place where he would help his people, Moses risked losing everything. He risked losing his position, his position as the adopted son and the royal position of prince that he had, he had received. And in addition to that, losing all the pleasures and all the treasures that Egypt had afforded him. He had risen to this place of, of power in regard to word and deed, and it was all going to go away. It required courage and faith, and this is what is affirmed to us again in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews writes about this in chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, and he says this, he says, by faith, when Moses came of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater of the, the, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the, than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And guys, that's a key in our faith walk. That's an element in our walk of faith that cannot be absent in order for us to be successful. In order for us to have an active faith, we have to keep that eternal reward part of that call of our lives always before our mind where we go, listen, there may be a loss in the here and now, but it's worth it in eternity. So even though we should admire Moses, really, I believe, for his love, for his people, and for his courage that he expressed at this time, we have to acknowledge the fact that in his zeal, in his lack of wisdom, he ran ahead of God. And, and I think we can all relate to that. I mean, that's not something exclusive to Moses, where we get fired up, where God's opened up our eyes to something, where he's touched our heart and something, and we're like, got it, God. And boy, we're out. And it's not long before we run straight into the wall or fall in a hole and, and, and do something in our zeal that we later regret, just like Moses did in the way that he acted. And in the moment that Moses... Lifted his eyes, at verse 12 says. The moment when Moses lifted his eyes in verse 12 to look this way and to look that way before he killed the Egyptian, what we see is that the faith that was spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11, at that moment, that faith was set aside. Moses' faith was set aside as he then in turn acted in a way that seemed right to him in accordance to what he thought his eyes could see, right? We walk and live by faith, not by sight. And often we look around to our circumstances and our situations and we abandon in our zeal perhaps the leading of God 
and we go, I got this, because we're looking to it, and we go, I got this, and next thing you know, we, we don't got it. Walk by faith, hearing and hearing from the Word of God. You know, in Moses, he's a little bit like Peter, is he not, in the Garden of Gethsemane? In this situation, he reminds me of him. You know, Peter was also a man of zeal, one who usually um, acted and spoke later, or spoke and then thought about it later, you know, depending upon what he was doing. And he was, in Peter, like, like, and like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, Moses turned to, at this moment, and he depended upon the sword in his hand and the power in his arm, the strength in his arm. His own resources, his own understanding of the situation. But these things, the cool thing about it is, is what we're going to read, is what we're going to see, is that the sword and the strength in, in his arm, these things would eventually be exchanged for a rod, a staff, right? And not only a rod and a staff, but the power that comes from God. And guys, there's nothing better than the tools that God equips us for and the strength that he gives us to do it. Something to be done in his, in his power and in his might. And I love it that, the, that Paul writes, you know, he speaks to the, the Galatians about the salvation that we've received in Jesus Christ. And he basically says, are you so foolish that, that you believe that what has begun in the Spirit now can be made perfect in the flesh? And man, it's a, it's a, it's a warning for us in regards to the salvation that we've received, meaning that God's the one that not only saves us, but he's the one that sustains us. God's the one that, that cleans us up, if you will. He doesn't expect us, you know, go, okay, you're saved now, now deal with your sins. Stop sinning. I mean, yeah, and God calls us to live holy and righteous lives, but you know what? That's a work that's done by God through His Spirit. And if you think that you could do it now simply because you know the Lord in your own strength, you're just as foolish as when you thought you could do it before you came to the Lord, because we all did that at some point. We were confronted with our sin, confronted with our unrighteousness, and we sought to go in a way that was right to us and go, I just got to stop doing this. And yeah, it's true. You, we needed, I needed to stop doing that. But it's no different before we came to the Lord than it is after we come to the Lord because He's the one that saves us. He's the one that redeems us. And, 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 and that work that was begun in the Spirit of God and God saving us through His Spirit is a process that continues as God sustains us and sanctifies us by His Spirit. And that principle is true and it's, 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 it's chimed all throughout the Word of God. You know, even in rebuilding the temple and the temple walls with, with Nehemiah, you know, this, this idea of, 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 of somehow getting distracted and veering off in a way once a work's been done to then try to do it in your own strength. Not by power and not by might, says the Lord, but by my spirit. And guys, lots of times God does a good work through us in ministry or in serving or, or witnessing or discipling. And, and we can't be tempted to get to that place where we go, yeah, I got this figured out a little bit. And in our zeal, in our passion, in our love, in our courage, step out because we've looked to the left and we've looked to the right. We've looked this way and we've looked that way and we've done something that seems right to us. We must walk by faith. We must be equipped with God, what God puts in our hand. We must rely upon the power that comes from God. Moses will get to that point. And even though Moses buried the man, we're told here, that he had killed. And to try to hide, lots of times we do that, you know? We try to hide that, that thing that we've done in our zeal. But, but, but even though he tried to, to hide what he had done, it was obvious that his, that his deed had not gone unseen, right? And in, and in verse 15 or verse 13, excuse me, it tells us that it was just the very next day that Moses 
now feeling probably a little self-righteous, apparently, um, because he, he had stepped out and he had done a good thing. But um, he stepped out and he found two Jews fighting now, two of his brethren. And in trying to help them, he found out that it was, it was now known that he had killed a man. And in verse 15, it tells us that when Pharaoh heard of it, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill him, but that Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to dwell in the land of Midian. And in verse 16, it says, now a priest of Midian there uh, had seven daughters and they came and drew water and they filled their troughs to water their father's flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and he helped them and watered their flocks. And when they came to rule their father, he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian, and I want to I read that again, and then we'll stop there, but an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds and also drew enough water out for us to water our flocks. Now, because, guys, Moses had acted in haste, he became a fugitive at this point rather than the deliverer that God had, was, was preparing him for. And, and God took Moses as a result of this into the wilderness, into the wilderness to be a shepherd in order that he might teach and train Moses for the work that he would send him back to do. And God's going to send him back. We know that. If you've read the story or you've heard the story, you know that he will. But it's going to be 40 years from this point, another 40 years in the wilderness. And when we look at the whole of Moses' life, we see that it is really divided into three equal periods. 40 years as a prince in Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, and then 40 years as the leader of Israel. And at the beginning of the second period, we see that Moses... As, as he transitioned into this time, into this, distant, this, this, this different life, he, he assisted these women as, as they tried to water their flocks. And once again, we see Moses' courage. We see the man being revealed. This, 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 these things that God would take to bring forth, to bring glory to his name, and to bring forth his work. We see that man, Moses was a man of courage, but he was also a man who desired to stand up for what was just, for what was right. And, and it was his kindness to these ladies, to these seven daughters, that led him to meet Jethro, their father, and marry his, his, eventually his, his, one of his daughters for his wife, Sephora. But I find it interesting that Moses was identified in verse 19 here as an Egyptian by Jethro's daughters. And you know what? What that reveals to us is what, really what it suggests is that at this time, Moses was more like the Egyptians than he was like a Jew. His Hebrew brothers, who he even professed to be at that time, what he recognized, more like an Egyptian than he was like a Jew. And I think, I think it's, it's a subtle bit of information that reveals to us how there was that, it reveals to us just how much needed to be changed in Moses before he would be useful in the hands of God. And so Moses spent 40 years as a faithful servant, we're told, in the land of Midian. And during those years, God was preparing him for the difficult task that lay ahead, right? And when we get to chapter 3 next week and a little bit into chapter 4, we're going to look into what God was doing during these 40 years of, uh, of preparation, during this time that he was working in Moses and on Moses so that he might work through Moses to prepare him to be useful in his hands. And I point this out. Because I suspect that during these 40 years, it might have seemed to Moses that God was doing nothing. See, Moses was already invested in the cause, so much so that he was willing to take another man's life to set his people free, to set his brothers free. 
And so I'm sure that those thoughts of what was going on with the people back in Hebrew in, in, in Egypt never escaped his mind or his heart during those 40 years period of time. And I'm sure he didn't have any idea on what needed to be done or even how he could be used to do it, since, especially now since what he thought was going to be his vehicle to, to, to execute that plan, to stop the injustices, the power that he had, the position that he had, he no longer had these things. They were gone. And so it may have seemed to Moses that during this time that God was doing nothing, that nothing was being done. After all, while Moses was just there raising a family and herding sheep, we know that his brothers back in Egypt were still suffering. If Justin, if you and Rich want to come up, we're going to end with this. In fact, what we read here at the end of this chapter is that things were getting worse. Even with the death of the guy who was behind all of these, these commands that were bringing this harshness upon the Hebrew people, even after he died, things were getting worse. And the fact of the matter is, we all have these times or those times of waiting on God like Moses had here. Times of waiting. You know, and, and, and it's... It, they, they're even defined as times that are being spent in the wilderness, right? Well, you're not doing such glamorous or glorious things, herding sheep. Think about that. From prince to sheep herder, quite a contrast for Moses. A time where it appears to us that God is doing nothing. God's not doing anything in our lives, in us or through us, or in the lives of people around us, those people who we're praying for, those people who we are praying for God's, God to act and change their hearts, where God's, it appears that God, God, you're just, what are you doing? doesn't appear like you're doing anything. But what we see here, and what we see exampled all over Scripture, and in this account, is that, that, that it's, it's never the case. God's never not doing nothing. God's got a plan. Even when we don't see the workings of it, when it's, when it's blind to our, our ability to see and our ability to understand, it doesn't mean that God's not doing something. And only was God doing a work in Moses during these 40 years to prepare him for going back to Egypt. Is that, 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 that God was working not only in, in, in Moses to prepare him, but he was working in Egypt. He was working in the hearts of the Hebrew people to prepare them so that his work might be done. And this is what can be concluded from verses, from what we're told in verses 23 through 25, which tells us this. It tells us that God heard the groans of his people and really what he was doing was waiting for the right time to act. Guys, the point is this morning, hear this, the point is, is whatever, whenever God works, we see with Moses that he chooses, always chooses the right worker. Always. He uses the right plan. And he always acts at the right time. And so God's delays aren't evidence of unconcern. Because lots of times that's where we go. God, why aren't you doing anything? Don't you care about me and my circumstances? I mean, the psalmists even write those very words over and over again. But then there's always this word, but where God steps in, where God works in his time. And so God's delays aren't evidence for unconcern. For he hears our groans, right? He sees, he looked and he saw. He sees 
the, the situation are in. He feels our sorrows. He remembers our co- and he remembers the covenant that he's made with us. And what God has promised, guys, he will perform. He will be faithful. For he never breaks a promise to his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, for these reminders, for these truths. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened in our own walk of faith. Lord, that we wouldn't doubt and have fears. That we would, that we would wait upon you if we're in that time, in that season, Lord, so that we wouldn't, we wouldn't rush out in our own zeal, Lord, and, and do something in a way that seems right to us. And Father, if there's anyone here doubting or fearful, God, because of the circumstances that they're in today, and you've spoken to them, Lord, what you have for their lives and how you desire to work in them and through them, I pray, God, that you would strengthen us all so that we wouldn't look at the, 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 the risky side of it and the, and, the, and the things that people might say is foolish that, that hold us back, Lord, from living a life of faith, a life devoted to you. I pray, God, that you would give us all wisdom. You tell us, Lord, that if we lack wisdom, we can come and you would give it to us liberally. But we owe God that wisdom in our lives only comes through a knowledge of you, an understanding of you, and then, and then in accordance to our obedience to obey you. So, for, Father, I pray that you would empower us, Lord, to, to walk in obedience to you, to live with an active faith, and to live according to your will. Father, because we know, <coughs> God, we know that you have a plan for our lives, and we desire to walk in the good works that you've laid before us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, why don't you stand with us, please, and we'll worship the Lord together.